Lord, we do praise you today for who you are and the fact that you have cared for us and have a place for us in uh, your not only your kingdom, but within your family of others. And we praise you that you've drawn us to yourself, enable us to see clearly reality and see you and to know that we need you. This morning, as we look into your word, we desire to see more of that and attempt to understand even sometimes difficult passages. So we just commit our time asking that you would have your way amongst us. We pray in Jesus' name. This morning, let's take a look at the book of Romans. The book of Romans, in a lot of ways, is not an easy book. It's very theological, and there's a lot of passages that are not as easy to look at as a lot of other books. But the book of Romans is not as hard, I don't think, at least in my study, as the book of Hebrews. We made it through the book of Hebrews. I think it's a lot more difficult, not only theologically, but just trying to understand and work your way through it. And one of the more difficult passages in the book of Romans is this passage in Romans chapter 5. Every time I look at it, I have to kind of go into detail to remind myself of it because it doesn't immediately make itself evident. So we're going to take a look at just that one verse. We probably won't even get through it. But I also want to give you an overview of kind of the whole paragraph that begins in verse 12 through the end so you can can have a handle on it. And I put together a little chart, mainly for my benefit, (laughs) to try to follow the thinking of Paul, and that's what we're trying to do is think God's thoughts after him, and what God has revealed in his word are his thoughts, so we want to be careful in trying to understand what God is revealing to us. So in our book of Romans, we've been looking at the provision of God's righteousness, and This can be broken down into various parts. Condemnation. Spent a lot of time looking at chapter 1, 18 through 320. We're coming close to the end of justification, you might even say, and even some commentators break it after chapter 4 because his argument concerning justification basically ends there. I see basically all of chapter 5 as a transition, and I'll talk more about that. A transition from justification to sanctification, which will be dealt with in 6 through 8. That's the section that deals with how do you live the Christian life once you have entered into it. The theme throughout the book is God's righteousness. passage we're going to look at goes back in some sense, but it also looks forward in a bigger sense, you might say. And what Paul is reviewing is the damage that sin does as a result of what Adam did thousands of years ago, what he did to the human race and has affected us, in contrast to what Christ has done on our behalf as well. So there's a lot of comparisons, contrasts in there in chapter 5 as part of the Transition, particularly beginning in verse 12. So the major barrier, we'll come back, I'll reiterate it, but the major barrier between God and man is that man is condemned, he's unrighteous, he's a sinner, 
there's no hope. You saw the no hope, helplessness in prior verses in chapter 5. And what Jesus has done on the cross has dealt with that problem of sin. Justification deals with entering into that relationship. Sanctification deals with our relationship with God on a day-by-day living basis. And the problem is the same. The problem is sin. That's still the major barrier in terms of our relationship even after justification. And I think that's why this passage is here, is to cement in our thinking that problem that we have, that major barrier that we could call sin, that's what the Bible calls it, and it's going to apply also to the whole area of sanctification. And that's how he concludes the paragraph. We'll see that in a moment. Now, this is a different chart. I'll show you the other one that I was referring to, but this kind of gives you the relationship of chapter 5 to the section preceding and the section following. Chapter 3, verse 21 through chapter 5, 21, I include this chapter within justification, but then I'm going to break it down as a transition as well. So justification, God dealing with that major barrier such that we have a relationship, an initial relationship, we call that justification. Now there's a transition to chapter 6 through 8. And it's a two-part transition. Uh, we looked at first 11 verses. I call that the profit that we gain from justification. And if you remember, we talked about we have peace with God now because he's dealt with sin. He's dealt with it such that we can have a relationship and we have peace. And justification gives us an introduction to more grace. That also that more grace aspect is going to be discussed in more detail, 6 through 8. And even beyond that, beyond this life, we have a hope of glorification or glory. That's the last part of uh, verse 1 there. And that gives us motivation such that no matter what happens in this experience, because of what God has done, these earthly experiences really don't matter in terms of eternal things. So it's all motivation, so we can encounter tribulation. That's part of the passage as well. But because of what God has done for us, and we have this relationship, and nothing else matters, neither does tribulation. And that, in fact, God is going to use to begin this process or to effect the process of sanctification. So see the relationship there in that everyday living When you encounter hardship, we look at it from a different perspective, knowing that God is using it to grow us, or we might say sanctify us. And from that, we have a hope. So the passage kind of ends, and he reminds us of that new relationship because of reconciliation. He doesn't use the word friend, but he's turned us from enemies, a word he does use, reconciling us so that now we have a friendship with God. That's the concept of reconciliation. Now the paragraph that we're going to look at today is going to contrast. There's two parts to it. That's chapter 5, 12 through 21. The first part are 12 through 17, where he's going to deal with this reign of sin. And I think that's a key word. If you keep that in mind, it'll help you to understand what he's talking about. Sin has reigned over humanity 
from Adam on. And as a result, there's a reign of death. In fact, that's the phrase that he uses more commonly in the passage. So this idea of ruling and reigning, sin has basically taken over humanity. It reigns in our lives until that is broken. That's justification. And that's the major barrier that we have before God in terms of a relationship at all. So the reign of sin and death deals with that initial relationship that is broken as a result of what Christ has done. And then I think he begins a very direct transition, and he's going to talk about the reign of grace. It's not automatic. In fact, it takes our whole life to grow and to actually be sanctified, and that process never ends as well in this life. That's why in the beginning of chapter 5, he talks about that future glory when we are removed from these sinful bodies. So I see this as a transition, the reign of grace. That is the basis for living everyday life, to keep us from going back to that reign of sin and death, where when we live in the flesh, he's going to talk about that mainly in chapter 7, we're living basically in the same way that we were before we were justified. So this is a very difficult passage, the most probably difficult in the book of Romans, and it's going to take some time to try to lay it out for you, so I've got a chart to help us work our way. Remember, he's writing to believers, people that understand or at least have some familiarity with theology and what the Bible teaches. So... He's assuming that you know a lot, particularly the things that he's developed before. So he's going to touch on them by way of not only reminder, but tying it all together so that we understand that we need to live under grace. And that's how he ends the chapter. And then he begins chapter six with this idea of grace as well. So I think that's how this very difficult kind of, might even say convoluted, convoluted in our mind only, (laughs) passage that is not so easy, and I'll try to break it down, give you a kind of an overview of it, and then we'll work our way through it. So we're not going to get too far today. So we're going to talk about this powerful reign, and what I have in mind here, where he ends up the reign of grace, but there's also this powerful reign of sin as well. But the reign of grace comes from and only comes into effect when we've trusted in Christ and have justification, or what other passages describe as salvation. So let's take a look at this paragraph. It begins with, I've divided into two parts. It's not reflected on your outline entirely, but this first part is 12 through 17. What is that? Five verses, six verses. The reign of death, and you're all familiar with that. So we've already covered that. So in some ways, there's a lot there that we won't reiterate again, but I'll remind you of some of it. The reign of death through one, but it's important to understand this relationship that we have with Adam because it gives us insight in the relationship that we have with Christ. Make sense? So it's a devastating reign. It's a reign of death. That's verses 12 through 14. So I see those verses somewhat hanging together. And first of all, verse 12, and that's as far as we'll get today, he discusses the entrance of sin and death. Where did it come? How did it come? Why are we in this predicament? 
Why do we tend in that direction? Even as believers, we tend in that direction. And how do we deal with that? Uh, he's going to transition, and we'll get to that a few weeks from now. So that's kind of the outline, at least as far as verse 12, and we'll move from there. So it begins, therefore, and the English just doesn't quite reflect because there's a, there's a different word that is more commonly translated, therefore, from the Greek text, the original text. The word un, O-U-N, transliterated, basically is the common word that's translated, therefore, which usually means coming to a conclusion. In other words, this is what we conclude based on what came before. This is slightly different, and I think there's a different, slightly different idea here. The therefore here is dia tuto. Now, some of you, that doesn't mean a whole lot. But I'm just pointing out that it's different, and it has more the idea of through this. In other words, as a result, or through what he's just discussed, this follows, or this continues, you might even say, or for this reason... We have justification, kind of the reasoning behind it, more than a conclusion, you might say, or because of this. And what it is, it's a summation. It introduces to something of a summation of all that has gone before. So right off the bat, even the first word here is not normal and usual. And as a result, if we miss it, it sometimes can throw you off in understanding. So what he's going to do is kind of summarize much of what he's talked about using very different language, but he's still talking about the problem of sin right here. So it's a summation of all that has gone before. I think that's more the idea rather than now we can conclude these things. So he's talking about kind of the same thing, and then he's going to transition. So it's a transition to this, what Paul uses, this theological word, sanctification. And he uses these words because he's not writing to the unbeliever, even though he's describing the life of the unbeliever, so that we as believers understand that, so that we can better minister and reach the unbelieving world. So it's a transition, I see it. Uh, We've already had that other transition, but now it's kind of a more direct transition. But as I said, this is one of the most difficult, but it's also one of the most important passages in not only the book of Romans, but basically the Bible, because of all of the interconnectedness that it has with with all of the points that we've already looked at. Theologically, it is very important, and in some ways it's a test, you might say, of good theology, and theologians have debated this passage probably more than any other in the book of Romans. When you say this 12? 12 to 21. Good clarification. The whole passage, the whole paragraph. So in some ways it's a supreme test, but it also gives us a lot of insight as well if we're careful with it. Just to give you a feel for that, Lewis Berry Chafer says the most concentrated summary, that's why it's important, the most concentrated summary of the basic truth of Christianity in all the scriptures. Quite a statement. Certainly impressed Linda. Barnhouse says this is the hinge of the door that swings between life and death. So it's kind of the doorway, you might say, of theology. All contrasts of the universe 
and scripture are here in miniature. And it's full of contrasts. In fact, I'm going to bring that out this morning, the many contrasts that we have in the passage. Contrast mixed with comparison, kind of working together. So a couple of quotes there. So theologically, it's important. Historically, it's also important in that Paul, in this passage, along with some other ones, but this one is a major one, shows that Adam is a historical, real, live person. The book of Genesis is not mythological. The events that are recorded in the book of Genesis are just as real as the events in the history of the United States, just as real as George Washington, founders of our country. Adam is just as real. So the things that deal there, and I mention this because... Much of the church, the extended church, you might say, views the early chapters of Genesis as non-historical. And if it's non-historical, then that undermines the validity, basically, of those chapters. In fact, we're going to go to Genesis chapter 3 because you have to understand it to understand some of the words that Paul is going to use here. So it's important historically. It's even important scientifically, also related to the early chapters of Genesis, It actually, this verse is one of the dividing verses between old earth and young earth creationists within the Christian community. The old earthers have to either dance around this passage, beginning in verse 12 through 14 particularly, but they have to really do damage, I think, when it talks about sin and death originating with Adam because it doesn't fit the old earth chronology. So there's a lot of things that they do, and they tend to spiritualize, which undermines, spiritualize Genesis 1 through 11, which I think undermines it as well. So scientifically it's important. And obviously from the practical, it's very important because it introduces us to this whole doctrine of living the Christian life. In other words, how does it live out? And how do we deal with sin after we become a believer? Very important passage. So we're getting into the most practical part of the book of Romans. So, therefore, just as, and when you see something like that, when something is just as something, then what do you expect? A comparison. Just as this is true, so also, or so similarly, this is true, But if you read through the verse, therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin, dealing with the issue of the entrance of sin or where did it come from, just as that is so, what do you expect in verse 14? So also this is true. But you don't get that in verse 14. In fact, what you have here is kind of a little, this is why it's very important to read your Bible carefully. Did you notice the little dash there? In fact, some versions put verses 13 through 17 in parentheses. Is that your version, Connie? Okay. So he interrupts his thinking, and it's not unusual for Paul to think, oh, I've got, before I explain this... (laughs) Before I give the just as, so as this, I've got to kind of give some detail and some explanation 
so that uh, they understand what I'm talking about, that this one sin entered in. You see that? Now, if you miss that, then it, it gets real confusing, and that's what makes the passage difficult. So where do we have to go to find where he kind of picks up? It's not strictly speaking parenthetical, but it, it's a little bit of a kind of a further elaboration or further explanation. And he goes into some detail, 14 through 17. So obviously into verse 18, now we have, just as this is true, so then, so also is this. In other words, if this is true, then this has to be true as well. So then, and then he reminds what he just talked about. So then, as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men, kind of going back. Even so, now he's picking up the argument. You get it? You see what he's saying here? And now, you could almost skip, if you can take all that for granted, oh, I know all that, then you can skip verse 12 and skip to verse 18 to pick up the even so, or so then. In other words, this is what follows from verse 12. I think that's very important. If you do that, then you kind of put the passage together. Now, I've come up with a chart that kind of summarizes the whole passage so that you have it grammatically. And it starts, we've already looked at the therefore. In other words, I'm still talking about justification, but I'm transitioning. And this therefore is because of the things I've talked about, then these follow. Now he's going to talk about the reign of death versus the reign of grace. The reign of death versus the reign of grace. And we won't get to the grace aspect this morning because we want to get into what he's talking about concerning the condition of deadness. Paul picks up on this in Ephesians. You are dead in your sins and your trespasses, or you were, he's speaking to the believers at Ephesus, until you have made that real commitment to Jesus Christ. So the reign of death versus the reign of grace, that's the whole paragraph, all right? But we have in verse 12, just as, and if you want the Greek word, it's hosper, just as we have this reign of death through one man's sin. There's a connection between you and I and Adam. Just like those of you that have children, there's a connection, very direct connection between you and your children, you and your grandchildren. We have a connection with Adam. We are his great, 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 dot, 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 great, 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 great grandchildren. But we have a connection. We have a relationship. And from God's perspective, what happened to Adam has had an impact on us. Just as if and just like, I'll use the analogy, those of you that have kids and grandkids, they'll probably have your eye color. You know, the color of your eyes. If you got brown eyes, both parents probably don't have blue-eyed kids, right? So your genetics has had an impact on your kids. Now, if you've lived a life of prosperity, you make out your will, who benefits when you die? Your kids benefit. But if you have been careless and not so diligent in your, your life and you've squandered everything, and you end in bankruptcy, what happens to your kids? They suffer that consequence as well. Well, we are still suffering the consequence of Adam because we are related. That's part of what he's going to do here. 
We could look at that as a reign or a rulership, or you might look at it in terms of effects that still plague us today. So we have a reign of death through one man's sin. And I just pointed out in verse 18, he's going to pick up that following comparison slash contrast. The reign of grace from one man's righteousness. That's the connection. That's why it's a comparison. One act through all of humanity in the sin, one act on the cross made available an escape from that reign of death. See the connection there? This is the results. That's why we have just as this, so then this, a result. The reign of grace from one man's righteousness, and it's a rulership. It's a reign, you might say, like in a government or in a kingdom. We'll get into the details of that when we get to chapter 6. In fact, we'll get into some of that before as well. So then, and then he picks it up, even so, now he picks up the argument. But before he gets to verse 18, how does 13 and 14 fit in? It starts with four, and this is the normal four or gar. He's going to explain a little bit more of verse 12. So it's explanatory. That's why I have explanation there. So he's going to go into more detail. I think this is a important chart to try to put this difficult passage together. Well, what about 15 through 17? Well, he's going to go further. He's going to make a contrast now. So he made a statement relating. He's going to give us 13 through 17, kind of more elaboration on 12. So he's going to follow through verse 13 through 14. And then 15 through 17, he's going to contrast what he just said. And because this is so long, we've got, what, two, five verses in there. By the time you read all his words and his thoughts, and not all of them are easy to understand, we get lost in the passage. And by the time we get to verse 18, we've lost all track of what's going on. So hopefully this will help you. At least I'm hoping. Okay? So now he's going to give the contrast to what he said in verses 13 through 14. Now in verse 18, so then, even so... Going back to verse 12, he makes a statement, and then he's going to expand on that statement, another four in verse 19, and then he actually gets to what he wants to convey, that transition to chapter 6, 7, and 8 in verses 20 through 21 of another contrast. And there's your whole chart. So that's the whole passage, tried to put it together with the grammar trying to follow the thought pattern of Paul as he works his way through here. So, granted, it's a very difficult passage to follow. It's like that passage that we saw in uh, chapter 3, 21 through 26. Remember that one? That was one sentence. At least here, it's broken down into more than one sentence, but it's even more complicated. But I think if you follow kind of the grammatical logic, I think it's helpful. And I'll remind you of some of this as we go through it. So all we're going to look at is verse 12, and we won't even get to the two dashes. (laughs) Okay? So therefore, just as through one man, he doesn't name that one man because he assumes you know the Bible, he assumes you know who he's talking to or about. 
That one man, obviously, is Adam. So he's writing to an audience that is familiar with these things. That's why it's complicated, because he's assuming that you have some background, at least. So you know the one man is Adam. He's going to specify clearly in verse 14. So through one man, and notice throughout the passage, he's going to emphasize, in fact, the word that occurs most frequently is what in this passage? You can figure out from these three words. It's one of those three. So you have three options. Through. Through. Everybody's wrong. One. One. <laughs> one. Yep, look at this. Therefore, just through one man, sin entered into the world. Skip to verse 15. For if by the transgression of the one, the one that he talked about in verse 14, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift of the grace of the one, the grace of the one, a different one now, and he identifies it. One man, Jesus Christ, abound of the many. Verse 16, the gift is not like that which came through the one. Which one does that one refer to? Adam, who sinned. For on the one hand, now in the Greek text, it's not, it's a different word there. That's why I got it in parentheses, but you have an extra one in the English. On the one hand, the judgment arose from the one transgression of Adam. That one sin, we are still suffering today. That one sin. Doesn't stop there. Goes on 17 through 19. For if by the transgression of the one, who is that one? Adam. Death reigned through the one, through Adam. Much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the American Standard helps you there. The one capitalized. You see that? Jesus Christ, if you didn't get it. So then, as through one transgression of the one, Adam, there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness on the cross, Jesus Christ, there resulted justification of life. Now he introduces the idea of life here. because He's going to expand on the new life that we have in Christ. Verse 19, For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of one the many will be made righteous. Terry. Christian evolution is reconciled. With Adam? Yeah. I mean, it's so clear. You mean old earthers? How do they do it? Yeah. They have to dance around the passage. Some of them don't look at it. Some of them omit it. And they explain it away. That's why it's important to be careful with the scriptures. You can't get into all kinds of problems if you do, if you're not careful. What I'm making is he is working this contrast. The one act of one person in contrast, and in the comparison is there's one act, and the contrast is two very radically different effects. I just wanted you to see that because we're going to encounter it over and over. So we have these comparisons and contrasts. You need to keep these kind of in mind because they reinforce each other and help us to understand the passage. The comparison is we have two men that perform two acts that have long-range effects. In other words, two long-range results. We have two sets of the many. The many includes those related to Adam. In other words, everyone related to Adam. The many that are involved there, all the way down to our age. 
and even beyond, as compared to the many that trust in Jesus Christ for justification, we have what we might describe theologically as two federal heads. I'll explain that later. Substitute representative heads for federal. Now, if you want to use the analogy of our government, we have a federal government. And what we mean by federal, we mean a representative government. That's why the elections are important. Because when our senators vote against a Kavanaugh, it's like you and I have voted against him, sadly. We have a representative government, positively as well. If they vote for the things we support, they represent us. We don't go vote, they vote, representative. So we have two federal heads, we have two reigns. In other words, there's a an impact like a reigning of a king that makes decisions that affects everyone, and that effect affects the entire kingdom. So there's a kingdom of Adam, you might think. What happened with Adam has impact on us. What happened with Christ, when we trust in Christ, that's a reign as well. So there's two reigns. And what he did, if we accept it, it's not automatic, if we accept it, he's already made that clear, it's by faith, remember? So he's not reiterating that, he's just contrasting here what he's already talked about. So trusting in him, there's a whole reign as well. And both have eternal effects. If those that remain in Adam and never accept Jesus Christ, then they remain separated from God into eternity. So there's two effects. There's the possibility of eternal life restored to God himself. So that's the comparison. The comparison of two men, two acts, two results, two sets of the many, two federal heads, two reigns, two eternal effects. And all that has worked in this passage. The contrast, we have a contrast of condemnation versus justification. The two major sections we've already looked at. And he uses the same words in here. Disobedience of Adam is contrasted with the obedient act of Jesus Christ. It was an act of obedience going to the cross. The sinful act, an unrighteous act, you might say, in contrast to an act of righteousness that Jesus did on the cross. It was an act of righteousness. It permitted or it paid the penalty of our sin and allowed for us to be declared righteous. And by the way, justification is declaring us righteous and holy before a holy God. It's not making, remember we talked about that, it's not making us righteous, That's the process of sanctification or living it out where now we reflect that righteous position that we have in Christ. So one sinful act as opposed to that one act of righteousness, we have received that and we've been declared righteous. So that's a contrast. We have a contrast between the reign of death, which will begin in verse 12, with the reign of grace. Lots of contrasts. Lots of comparisons worked through the whole passage. Chrysostom says sin and grace are not equivalent. In fact, they're antithetical. Nor yet death and life. Nor yet the devil and God, obviously. Stark contrasts 
But the difference between them is infinite. You might even add eternal. Nice quote. So, we're moving along in verse 12 here. Therefore, just as something is true, not going to get to the other part of it till verse 18, just as through one man, there's your first one and your one first comparison, sin entered into the world. That's Genesis chapter 3. In fact, you might turn there because we're going to look at it when we look at the next phrase. So this looks back to Genesis chapter 3 with Adam and Eve. And very quickly, just to define these terms, he's going to use a different term later on. And I think keeping these in mind are also important to understanding the passage. The first one is hamartia. Pronounce it with like an H. See that little, it's supposed to be a rough breathing in the Greek that makes it like an H sound. So it would be H-A-M-A-R-T-I-A. It's basically the idea is missing the mark. In fact, we had this already in, well, we also in, uh, what is it, chapter 6. Falling short of the glory of God. In other words, there, no one reaches the standard that God has, has set, standard of righteousness, because of sin. Because And this is where it came from. So all of Adam's descendants can't reach it. He's already discussed that. So he's not going into detail here. Our best efforts to please God are what? Filthy rags. In other words, our righteous deeds or anything that we attempt because of sin are like filthy menstrual rags. Our sin does not reach the target, missing the mark. That's the basic idea of homarchia. So it's falling short of the glory of God, and all of us do because we are plagued with sin. We'll come back and look at the other word when we get to it. So the next phrase, therefore just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin. What is the meaning of the word death here? This is very important that you understand the biblical concept of death. You have to go back to Genesis again. Oh, Connie's pointing out it's on your outline sheet. Separation. It's part of it, but that's not all of it. What did God say? In fact, let's go back to Genesis and look at the passage. Let's go. We have to go to chapter 2 first. And would somebody read verse 16 and 17 in the book of Genesis? Because God himself gives us insight, and Genesis 3 gives more of the explanation as to what death is when we're talking about death in Romans chapter 5. Who's got 16 and 17? Connie, you got it? Uh, and the Lord God commanded the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of the day that you shall surely die, or literally dying. Yes, literally dying you shall die. I like to use that little phrase to translate that. You'll die dead. In other words, you'll be totally dead in terms of the meaning of the word. Now remember, this is in the context before chapter 3, before sin entered and God created. Remember at the end of chapter 1 where we have the seven days of creation, verse 31, God saw all that he had made and behold, it was very good. No sin, no death, no decay, no degeneration. Everything is very good. So, because God created mankind, a creature, 
with volition or will. The only way for that will to be exercised is to create a world where the possibility is to disobey. And here's the opportunity or the the circumstance where man is going to choose to love God freely or to choose the alternative. Now, I'm not going to look at the details of that, but you might skip to chapter 3 so that we can close with this and pick it up next week. When the Bible speaks of death, and you can identify with this, and this is very practical as well, death is not just the ceasing of breathing biblically. In fact, I think you see all of the evidence. Remember in verse 6 and 7, they partook of the fruit, both the man and the woman. We don't have time to look at the distinction here. God holds the man responsible because he was the head, even though the woman partook first and she gave to the man and he followed rather than leading. Okay, He holds the man responsible always. And that begins in Genesis chapter 2. Death through sin. So what is this death? It involves the intellect. Adam and Eve died intellectually or in their thinking. And you might notice, notice verse 7 of chapter 3. Their eyes, the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Their whole theology has changed. Their whole thinking has changed. And if you read on, and when they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. What are they already thinking here? Can you hide from a God that sees everything, that is omnipresent, that is everywhere, that knows every thought? Can you hide from him? No. Their whole thinking, their whole orientation, their intellect is affected. Their theology, you might even say, is totally distorted. How can you hide from a God of the nature that they were familiar with? And why do they hide? Because their minds know that there's guilt and they run from God. So the intellect, Paul calls it darkened in Ephesians. Our minds are darkened, and he's referring to the unbeliever in the Ephesians passage, and there's others as well. That's death, part of the death. Because it says, in the day that you partake, remember? And the idea, that's a Hebrew idiom. In other words, the nanosecond that you partake. Not that same 24 hours per se, but the moment you could translate that. It's a Hebrew idiom, the day, kind of the moment, if you will. They were darkened. Did they cease to breathe? No. Adam lived another 900, well, not another, but he lived to be 930 years before he ceased to breathe. So spiritual death or death defined by the Bible involves our total person. And on the outline sheet, it has a moral component, the guilt, the shame. That's why they tried to cover it up. And that's what we do with good works or going to church or whatever, being kind and thinking that somehow all that is going to gain favor with God, but all of that is like filthy rags. Kind of. The question you say in the day is people in um, and Paul says, now is the day of salvation. Is that kind of thing? Same, same idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a Hebrew idea. Yep. Very good. 
So Adam and Eve died morally, you could say. And they experienced shame. That's why they hide. That's why they cover. It's certainly spiritual in that they're separated from God. They're fleeing from him. They're hiding from him. That's 8 and 9, where it says, well, we read 8 and then 9. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? It's not that God moved. He's omnipresent. Adam and Eve moved. In other words, there's a separation. There's a spiritual separation. In terms of God, God, you can't leave God. You can't flee from him, even though they try. But in terms of man, there is a separation. So there's spiritual death. That happened the moment they partook. There's an emotional death. Now they have fear. Verse 10. And he said, I heard that, this is Adam, I heard the sound of thee in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid because I have guilt, and now I'm fearful because I know you're a holy God. And there's consequences because you announced it in chapter 2, verse 17. So there's an emotional component. And some of us battle with emotions today. It's as a result of that deadness that still resides within us. Fear. There are social consequences. There's a sense where our relationships are now affected as well. That's death. 11 and 12. And what do they do? What what does the man do? He said, who told you that you were, this is God, were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman. It's her fault. The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me. And notice that you gave me, so he's ultimately blaming God. God, if you hadn't given me this woman, my life would be great. Be with me. She she gave me from the tree of life, and I ate. It's her fault. So there's social problems and issues with with sin. Okay, so blame. And here's kind of an interesting thing. Uh, just you might identify with here. In the cartoon, will you pick up all your clothes? <laughs> In the garden, what were their clothes? <laughs> it's fig leaves, but cartoon words. There's also a problem with the purpose that God assigned mankind and woman as the helper. That is damaged as well. And that's 17 through 18. I won't read that. But basically, now it's going to be difficult to make a living, to support a family, to survive even. You're going to have to work hard. You're going to have to be diligent in terms of providing. Whereas before, that was there was no second law thermodynamics. There was no issue in terms of difficult labor. God gave tasks. It's not labor that is cursed. It's the difficulty in being able to carry it out because now we live in a fallen world. Their sin affected the world as well. In a sense, the world died alongside of man. And then there's physical death, verse 19. I won't read that one, but basically that looks beyond that one day, you might say, to the day that uh, they cease to breathe. But you might even look at it biologically, and the moment they sinned, cells in their body began to die. So they experienced physical death. They aged so in the day that they ate, they even died physically. They continued to breathe. It's kind of like a fan. You plug in a fan. Fan's working fine. It's spinning. I don't know how many revolutions per second, but it's spinning fine. 
You pull the plug, it died. The fan keeps going until the friction, you know, runs down, and it looks like, oh, it might be okay. It's not quite right, but it's still, still working. It's still, but it's dead. It's just a matter of time when it runs out of the energy to be able to, to finish. That's what it's like physically. Adam was still alive, Adam and Eve. They were, they were still breathing, but they were in the process of dying. Their very cells were dying. And then 930 years later, Adam died. I don't know how old Eve was. It doesn't tell us. Anyway, that's a good place to stop. In fact, we've gone way over. Who wants to close for us? That's the basis of women not sharing their age, right? That's right. <laughs> exactly. Why don't you close for us, Connie, since you, uh, since you twitched. Heavenly Father, I thank so much for your explanations, um, helping us understand how things work from your perspective. Lord, we, we need that. We go about it busy dated by this physical world that takes our hand and rest and tears away from you. And for this time that we have to get back to focus on what you have said and done to declare us righteous and praise you for that, Lord. Thank you again that you walk with our weeks. Pray that we will experience you in a new way as we in Jesus' name. Amen.